Mollusca. Hello and welcome to Animalia. The podcast all about the weird and interesting things that animals do. I'm Farley. And I'm Annie. Today's episode is all about how animals do it. And in particular, how insects and spiders do it. Because these mini beasts have some of the weirdest mating strategies out there. Chatting with us about these behaviours is Dr. Jones. My name is Dr. Teresa Jones and I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Biosciences at the University of Melbourne. Teresa researches, among other things, the evolution of different mating strategies. Basically, I'm a biologist because I had the coolest biology teacher at high school. Like, he was just awesome. You could ask him anything. And that was one of the questions. <laughs> we, we went, how do butterflies do it? That's how we asked it. Actually, it would have been in, this, in a Bristolian accent. How do butterflies do it, sir? <laughs> <laughs> and he went, well, I don't know, but I'll go find out. And he did. He found out and he told us in the next, you know, it wasn't part of our curriculum and he just told us and we were like, that's so cool. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. To have a, fast, a teacher actually go out and just learn something. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's a philosophy I think I take as well as I'm not afraid to say, look, I don't know. I'll find out for you. I think it's really important. It's really important for scientists to be able to do that to admit, yeah, it's going off topic, but kind of, you know, admit, admit that you don't know everything. And that's, that's the coolest bit about science, right? You don't know everything and you want to find out. So we asked Teresa why she's interested in studying insects. Look, I'm a theoretical biologist, really, who uses animals to test crazy ideas. And you can't do that when you use... Well, you can, but it's harder to do it on bigger things and vertebrates. And I quite like insects, actually. Why? That's a good reason. Why? Do why? They so much? They, birds are... Like, I work with birds much yeah. better. I mean, they eat insects, one. I reckon. <laughs> I reckon any, any person who works on birds needs to look at an insect under a microscope and it changes everything. They're so cool. They have everything that birds have and more. But I just taught my birds to sit in my lap and eat cheese off of it. I don't think you're getting an insect to do that. Get what? what? I just taught my bird to chop my lap and eat cheese off of my lap. Yeah. I can't really see a bug doing that. Oh, I could get a spider to do that. <laughs> yes, you can. I mean, you it's not an insect, technically not an insect, right? An arthropod, but no, no, that's true. You couldn't, but... I think if you've ever watched a prey, if you fed a praying mantis a fly and watched it eat it and watched it fly around the room, oh, I, I up your magpie with a praying mantis. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, for, for preparation for this podcast and kind of talking to you, I looked at videos of praying mantises because it's, I think it's the one of the most, it's one of the only mating um, strategies that people kind of know about is the idea of the female ends up eating the male. It's incredible. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Why they do it or when they do yeah, it? Yeah, why they do it, why, like when they do it, why would it be advantageous for a male to pretty much sacrifice himself? So I think, oh, look, they don't always do that. And I can tell, I know that because we had a female and a male praying mantis. My kids collected them from our garden and we had them in a cage. This is a really good lesson in nature. And we had them in a cage and one day they were mating. And I said, oh, they're mating. That's very exciting. Um, and the male survived. And I was like, oh, so cool, kids. The male survived. Anyway, the next day they were mating. And the day after that, we found the head on the floor of the male and the female had eaten him. So he got two matings. It's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, we don't really know why females do it. Females probably evolved it because that's what they do. That's their hunting strategy. And so it's kind of like a, a sensory bias, if you like. The reason we think it's advantageous for the female is that they might get extra resources from the male. So the male is pretty big, quite protonaceous. It's like lunch. 
I mean, I don't think humans should never evolve this, but, um, you know, it, it works for for, the, for her. It works for the male because he gets two, ma- two matings out of it and males can still mate while they're being, while their heads have been chewed off. So the head's chewed off, spat out. He's still mating for a period of time. So he's potentially getting more offspring from that. So it's a win-win Define win. Yeah. <laughs> I saw the, I saw the video of the zombie, the kind of the zombie mantis sex. It is it's bizarre. I mean, it looks like what it, with you, when you kill an animal, you cut off its head or something, how it keeps moving. Mm. But it's just a humping motion and a sex it's, motion. That's exactly what it it's is. It's so interesting. And it's you know, it's a, it's a primary thing that males in, in other animals other than humans <laughs> need to do. <laughs> <laughs> But spiders do it too, right? I mean, it's like, you know, the, the classic is the, um, the black widow and the redback. Males typically only get to mate once. And if they get to mate a second time, they literally somersault into the jaws of the female and he eats her. But she eats him, sorry. No. So Again, we don't really know why. Probably because males have got such a low chance of getting another mating because they, they, it's so costly to move around and they do get eaten quite a lot. But if you've got one, you might as well just give up or will. If you're giving in to, you're just pretty much feeding the females, so you're kind of adding to her nutritional, yeah, to her body yeah. state. And so hopefully give her a free meal and then she can. In the red back, well, certainly in the, in the black widows, we don't think that is, it doesn't hold as well as yeah. maybe in the mantis. The, the male mantis provides a much greater resource. The male spiders don't tend to, it's not, sure. they're not that big. Male spiders have got really, they're, they're really quite tiny compared to females typically. So they're, they're pathetic. They're just little balls of sperm. <laughs> um, you know, tasty snack, <laughs> corn chips afterwards, but you know, nothing much more. I guess that's one of the big questions, isn't it? Corn chips. Well, yeah, yeah. Corn, chips, corn chips, biggest, is the question. biggest yeah. question. But like some animals can reproduce without sex. So why is there sex and why are there males? Well, there are many answers to that question, I think. Um, no, look, there are disadvantages to producing asexually without sex, and so typically just females producing females. One is that you, you don't get uh, mixing of genetic material, and so potentially they're not as genetically diverse, and that's potentially a disadvantage. Um, sex creates mixing of genes um, between multiple individuals, and that's advantageous, particularly if you're living in environments that are... Um, not so constant and the environment's always changing so it gives you um, more opportunity and it also gives more opportunity for evolution to occur it gives more um, a baseline if you like for opportunity to act uh, for evolution to act before we get any further into the fascinating sex lives of mini beasts let's first talk about natural selection say you have a population where faster individuals are better at escaping predators faster individuals are more likely to survive and if running fast is heritable, they can pass on those genes to their offspring. And then, over many generations, more and more animals in that population will be able to run fast. That's natural selection. A special case of natural selection is sexual selection. Sexual selection is the selection of traits that help animals to attract or compete for mates. The classic textbook example is the peacock's tail. Having a huge and colourful tail with lots of spots on it isn't going to help a male survive, but it apparently helps him to attract a female. So with females choosing to mate with these fancier looking males and then having chicks that then grow up to look fancy too, males have started looking more and more fancy over many generations. This became really interesting. And I think one of the reasons was that actually when Darwin first thought about 
sexual selection, when he first conceived it really as something to explain all this weird stuff that he couldn't explain with natural selection, he didn't think it could work because he didn't think females had capacity to actually choose. He, he, he doubted the capacity and intelligence of females to actually, and I just, that annoyed me in part. Um, but so female preferences are really interesting because it does drive a lot of the processes. And we now know that it's not just female processes alone. I mean, it's male mating preferences too. But in many, in the majority of cases, females are what we call the limiting sex. So females are limited by how well they convert resources that they eat into offspring that they produce, whereas males are typically but not always limited by how many, how many females they can mate with. So I work on females because that's more likely to be the choosy sex, I guess. So why are females often the limiting sex? To use another bird example, a female duck's reproduction is limited by the number of eggs she can produce. Eggs are costly and take a lot of energy to make. She can't just lay an infinite number of eggs. But sperm are relatively small and cheap. A male duck can produce lots of them. And so from an evolutionary perspective, it's in his best interest to continue, well, ducking. Many, many other female ducks, as many as possible, from an evolutionary perspective. Sperm limitation was something that people like Darwin didn't really like to think about because males are, you know, limitless in their ability to produce offspring. We know that that's not true. And if that's not true, then females have to be even more choosy. So everything kind of comes back to this. Females need to be really choosy about who they mate with. And everything I learned about males meant that females still had to be even more choosy. Males are just a vehicle for me to understand why females were making the choices they were. So then what are some examples of like how insects are able to be choosy of the males? A lot of female mating preference happen way before sex ever happens. In fact, sex doesn't happen in the vast yeah. majority of cases because um, females are choosing on visual cues or the smell or what they sound like or even how they feel. Right? Spiders, they use tactile cues. The males get on the web and you'll see them uh, strumming a web like you would strum a guitar. And they're doing that to kind of test where the female is. Is she in the middle? How dangerous is this going to be? But it also allows the female to work out how heavy that male is and, and, and what his potential might be, for example. Really? Yeah. Did I know that? I didn't know that's actually how a spider attracted a female. It's if just... they work on it, so for all weaving spiders anyway, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, spiders are very cool. Sp spiders can build little mating threads and males kind of tightrope along and they plonk down a bit of sperm and then they suck it up in these little syringe-like um, structures on their heads. And then they, that's what they inject the sperm. So they don't have, you know, genitalia like we have. They've got these things that are hanging off the ends of their heads, which they hypodermic needles that suck up sperm. And then they shove these into the female's genital openings <laughs> of the spider. Oh my God, that sounds so <laughs> awful. <laughs> It's probably a, it's probably safer yeah. than going bomb to bomb. Yeah, so basically yeah. it gives them a better chance of escaping. Potentially maybe. a better chance of escaping, maybe um, a more accurate delivery of their sperm into um, the genital you can see where it's going. Like. See where it's going. You can hop off really quickly. Yeah. Um, if you need to. Yeah. What are some other weird? I want to know more about this kind of weird. <laughs> Sexual oh. organs that these oh. insects have. Well, some insects do hypodermic insemination, where bed bugs, for example, where the males will actually just directly inject their sperm into the hemocele, like the the opening into the the, the um, abdomen of the female, and the sperm just swims around. And then there's some weird examples where you can have kind of this homosexual mating, where one male can go on top of another male and hypodermically inseminate his sperm into that male, and then that male can hypodermically inseminate not only his sperm, but the other male's sperm into the female. 
Now that's cool. That's extremely cool. You see? I up your magpie twice. Insects have every mating system. I mean, I worked on Zeus bugs for a while, so they're these really cool little bugs that skate on the surface of the water, and we have them here in Victoria, and we also have them in Queensland. So I worked on, well, the Victorian population was in Shepparton. I worked on the, the um, Queensland population, which was up in, by Cairns, which was quite nice. Um, and there, males ride on the backs of females. So males will ride on the backs of females even when they're juveniles, and they're almost the same size as the female at that point. And what we found is that, and this is unusual, uh, although not unusual it, for that type of um, species. So water striders do the same thing. If you go out to a pond in summer, you'll see water striders, males on tops of females, and they ride around getting a free ride. <clears throat> um, this species was unusual, though, because it looked as though females were providing males with a nuptial gift. So it's the first example where it was sex role reversed nuptial gifts in all other species. It's males providing gifts to females because females are the juicy sex. So what we demonstrated was that actually, no, this was quite different. Females have got little glands on their backs and the males are just feeding from these little glandular secretions that the females are producing. We think they do that to kind of minimise males actually stealing their food. So what females do, they ride around, males are on their backs. <clears throat> They'll come to a, something floating in the river and the, um, the male will just hang over the top of the female, hang over her head while she's trying to feed. And that reduces her own foraging ability. And so to potentially reduce this, we suggested that by having this glandular secretion, so she eats, produces this little protein secretion, and he just sits there and eats that rather than steals her food at the time. That's crazy. Interesting. I up it three times. Yeah, that's, that's a bizarre one. So yeah. why, why wouldn't males just move around on their own? They're tiny. Um, yeah. they're, they're sperm packages, again, basically. Um, and it's cost effective for them. The one thing we couldn't do is find a really good benefit for females. So it reduces kleptoparasitism. Why it's evolved, we don't really know. The benefit for a male is it means that he can secure offspring. So if he rides around on the back of this female, he mates with her. And if he's, he's on her back, then no other male can be on her back. So he gains um, and it will reduce energetic costs and potentially also protects the sperm that he's um, just given her through mating because then she's not mating with another individual. And so the offspring that she produces are only his and they're not shared with another male. So it might be a way of increasing mating success. Seems like a not great if you've got a juvenile riding around on your back though because that's just awesome we've seen that in in water striders that's what they suggest happens that actually it's kind of best of a bad job i'll just leave this male on here because if he gets off then i'm going to get super harassed by a whole bunch of other males so it's but i'm better off just leaving this one and reducing my own energetic costs during that um that initial period and just leave him there to recap when it comes to breeding females need to be choosy they can use all kinds of information, tactile, chemical, visual, to decide on the best mate. But some females don't get much of a choice and have to make do with whoever's attached to their back. And what about males? Best thing they can do is mate with a female and have her never ever mate again. Yeah. Not necessarily great for a female, but super great for a male because he then just, none of his offspring have to compete with any offspring within that female. Um, and so you do have strategies like um, intermittent organs in spiders breaking off and plugging up the genitalia. You'll get males that transfer in butterflies, for example. They transfer two types of sperm. So they transfer fertilizing sperm and then they transfer this other sperm, which is like 
I want to say polyfiller, but it's kind of, it's a filler sperm. So it doesn't have a nucleus and it literally is there to extend the, um, the uh, spermatheca, which is like the little sac that stores all the sperm in the, uh, in the female. And if that's extended or distended, then the female thinks that she's got enough sperm forever and she will just fertilize without mating again. And as it, it gets um, uh, less, less distended, then she might mate again. That's a strategy males are using to trick the female into um, not remating. Males also transfer these little pheromones called anti-aphrodisiac pheromones, which make a female less sexy. So it's a double whammy. It's <laughs> a double whammy. And those yeah. butterflies, yeah. That was one of, actually, that was a beautiful study done by um, a really good friend of mine, Nina Vidal from Sweden. And she, that study, her and Penny Cook transformed how we think about male mating strategies and, um, and how sexual selection was operating. It's done in the 90s. It's a very, very cool study. I guess that leads really well into that idea of sexual conflict too, mm. is that what's best for a male isn't necessarily what's best for a female. And so you have these evolutionary forces that are acting differently in the two sexes. Absolutely. I mean, again, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's kind of transformed everything and we didn't really think about it until a bit later on. We'd done a lot in sexual selection before we started thinking about sexual conflict. It used to be thought of, I think Darwin describes it as a harmonious affair. And it's anything but. I mean, the water striders I was just talking about, absolutely. Mm. Um, yeah, there are some worse things I won't talk about. Those, but. <laughs> I think I think talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are, you know, I, I've, um, yeah, no, there are some really awful structures that males have evolved to damage females during mating to ensure that they don't remate or to reduce female remating rate. Yeah. Because there must be... I mean, at some point that has to have a disadvantage as well because they want the female to be able to bear their offspring. And so if they do too much damage, then surely that's... That's optimal. Yeah. yeah. It's an optimal solution. But the reason it's conflict is that optimal solution for a male is often still above optimal for a female. So mm. females are often... But you're right. I mean, it can't go too far. Otherwise, obviously, a dead female's not not producing offspring. Um, but it only has to be optimal for that male's offspring so, for example, in Drosophila, again, we know that males transfer sperm, but they also transfer these chemicals that are essentially toxic to females, some of them analogy, uh, analogous to spider toxins, right? So they've evolved this whole suite of chemicals that they pump in during mating. And what they do, males mate with a the female, they reduce a the female's remating rate, they make her pump out her eggs really quickly, and those eggs are fertilised by his sperm. They affect her longevity, but she still produced some offspring and they're all his. So it's super cool for the male. Yeah, it's one generation. My, my, my progeny are there and I'm done. And if she produces offspring that have got males that are capable of doing the same thing to other females, then she's also benefiting, not directly, mm -hmm. but indirectly. And so that's, that's kind of the models of sexual selection we think about. Those direct benefits are the ones to the female, like getting extra resources from your male. But she also benefits, and probably much of sexual selection is driven by this, indirectly by the benefits to her offspring. And if they gain benefits, she gains. Yeah. That's fitness ultimately. It's not how long you live, it's how well your offspring do and grand offspring, I think. Exceptions to that in the invertebrate world where say males are actually investing more and having to take on more care? Yeah, I mean, there are some cool examples where I think it's called the golden egg bug, where males will, <laughs> they're brilliant. Um, they're these little insects that um, 
they carry the eggs. So they, you see the backs of them are just covered in these tiny little eggs, so it's sex role reversed um, care in that case, and they wander around with them. Um, I had one other, oh, burying beetles are another very, very cool one where there's biparental care, so both the males and the females care for the offspring. So they're little tiny beetles and they, um, they basically lay, the female lays eggs in these carcasses and the male and the female both feed the very young offspring. So when they emerge, they're like little caterpillars or larvae and they need, they need to be fed by their parents very early on, otherwise they die. And what the parents do, thank God I'm not a burying beetle, they regurgitate their food. So they eat a bit of the carcass, regurgitate it and feed it to these young larvae. But if they're on a small carcass, and so they both do this, but males are gonna benefit if they can get another female. <clears throat> a small carcass can probably only hold one group of offspring though, but if it's a big one, the male can benefit by attracting another female. So what he does is he stands on his head and he puts his bottom in the air and releases this pheromone to try and attract other females because that's how he attracts them in the first place. He finds a carcass and he basically releases a perfume like we would put on aftershave or you know, deodorant to not smell as much, but or perfume. And that's disadvantageous to the female. So what she does while he's standing on his head, doing his headstand, trying to attract, she goes over and slaps him over so that he falls over from his headstand and can no longer produce this smell. So that's a really lovely example of sexual conflict where the female's trying to reduce that male's opportunity to mate again and share that carcass because the disadvantage for her then is her offspring are going to share that carcass with the two. But the males are investing in that species and mm. not as much possibly as a female, but they certainly invest and they're both really important. They can both rear the offspring alone, but they typically, typically don't. An old saying goes, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. But in the world of microbeasts, this is definitely not the case. Males want lots of offspring, and they want their offspring to have as little competition as possible. So males have evolved some pretty harsh ways to stop females from mating again, from genital plugs to toxic sperm that cause a female to die after bearing his offspring. But as we know in the animal world, there are always exceptions, and some fathers are more caring than others. To finish up, we asked Teresa about some of the other animals she has worked with. A quick note here, the word lek is derived from the Swedish word for play. Lekking is a mating strategy that's kind of like a game show, in which females are the judges and sex is the prize. Males gather in a group or a lek and compete for the chance to breed with a female. Inside a lek arena, each male shows off his best moves while females watch. Only the sexiest males get to mate with the females, while the others, well, there's always next year. Uh, so what other animals have you worked with? That's, it's, I mean, that's an insanely interesting one. Uh, what have I, um, so what have I worked on? I've worked on, look, mostly insects, mm -hmm. um, but I've done some spider stuff and birds. I inadvertently worked on chickens in Brazil as well because chick the um, flies that I worked on actually lept on the backs of these chickens. So I used to... Um, <laughs> I worked in this village in um, an island called Marajo and I, I went to this village and it was known because my supervisor was working there and um, these flies actually carry leishmaniasis. So he was a parasitologist. I had two supervisors, parasitologists and someone who worked on sexual station. So he knew all these villagers. Anyway, we got there and I said, oh yeah, you can use our chickens. So I gathered all the chickens together and I put them into different, because I wanted to know whether the amount of chickens available changed the size of how of the lek and whether that then changed how many females came. So I was kind of testing these questions in sexual selection. And they went, yeah, 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 no, you can have our chickens. It's fine. Which can you imagine going around to someone's house? Can I just nick your chickens for the evening? <laughs> so I go around this village, I take all the chickens, I put them into different size cages and I had all these different, and, but the first day I did it, I've never caught a chicken in my life. 
And um, they went, yeah, yeah, you can catch them. But they didn't help me. So I'm running around the village <laughs> trying to catch these chickens. And the, the elder woman of the village was crying, laughing. And let me do it for about 20 minutes. And then she just came out with a bowl of grain <laughs> and just put it down <laughs> on the floor and just went, there they are. And so I picked them all up and put them in. And that was fun. And I had the whole village would help me on that one. That's like my most interactive, engaging project I've ever done because all the kids would follow me around. It was kind of like a weird Pied Piper of Hamelin. Very cool. You're the, you're the British crazy chicken lady. Crazy chicken lady. Which is <laughs> better than, what was the other one? Toxic toxic sperm girl, I once had yelled out to me. That's toxic sperm girl. Because I'd been in a pub previously talking to these people and I'd explained the whole Drosophila sperm thing. And that's the only thing they could remember. They couldn't remember my name. Well, I think, I think, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's me. Anyway. I think once you say toxic sperm, that's your name for forever. Toxic sperm, I can't go back to Canary Wharf in London ever again. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Cool. Was, yeah, thank you. That was great. You literally well, went through everything it. without us asking. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's the problem. You get me talking. Thanks for listening to Animalia. You can find us on our website at animaliamedia.com. Please leave a five-star review and any comments you have for us. We always appreciate your feedback. Yep. And you can also find us on social media on Twitter at Animalia Podcast, on Instagram and on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Bye. Animalia Podcast is hosted by Annie Orsbrook and Farley Connolly, with occasional interjections by me, the sound engineer David Roker. Our logo is designed by Osvaldo Branklin-Yon, and all original music is by Sean Pratt.